Welcome to Favorite Attire. In this episode, I welcome Rebecca Van Bergen, founder of Build a Nest, a nonprofit focused on building a global handworker economy. We talked about how Build a Nest preserves cultural traditions by empowering artisans. We also talk about the role of handworkers in the fashion and beauty industry. And finally, Rebecca shares with me her definition of sustainability. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for being with me here today. Can you hear me properly? Yes, can you hear me properly? I was worried yes. about the headphones. Right. Yes, I can. Uh, how are you, first of all? How are you doing? Good, likewise. How are you? Very good. Uh, we're going to talk about Build a Nest today, which is your nonprofit. Obviously, you have different programs that we're going to talk about. But first of all, I want to talk about you. I saw on the website that you started the nonprofit when you were 24 years old, that your grandmother and mother were quilters and sewers. So tell us about your journey and why did you decide to, to start a nonprofit? Sure. Um, the, I did. I got my master's degree in social work. So definitely came at it through kind of the nonprofit lens as opposed to fashion or um, design or any of the things that we also support at Nest. But the year that I got my degree in social work, Muhammad Yunus had won the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance. Um, in a, kind of in international development, a lot of organizations started giving out loans to women in emerging markets. Um, and some were even calling it a solution to poverty. And in our country, to take out a loan is debt. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a successful business. So to support kind of micro and small business entrepreneurs around the world, especially women, um, it felt like models needed to be more holistic and really support with market building and education. And, um, and so I founded Nest to be that more holistic model. Um, and craft is the data around the sector is really terrible since it's mostly women and they're generally working in the informal economy in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, but by many estimates, it's the second largest employer of women in emerging markets and developing countries. And so it felt like a great sector to kind of support business development. So, but so the craft was a little bit secondary, but my, my family does have, as many families have a history of making and crafting that, that makes it feel um, even more special. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about artisans before we talk about your program, because, you know, when I think artisan, I think somebody who's uh, producing touristy trinkets, or I'm thinking Etsy, you know, and uh, while I was doing my research for this episode, I realized that they have a huge role to play in the whole, you know, fashion and beauty industry. So tell us about artisans what should people know sure I mean I think you I mean you hit the nail on the head I think particularly I think artisan has become more and more of a buzzword and there's increasing consumer demand Etsy was actually founded the year after I founded Nest and so it was a sort of a fledgling startup back then and I think that artisan and handcrafted definitely for most people brought to mind touristy trinkets or, you know, handcrafted Christmas ornaments. Um, But I think, you know, now we have a joke at our office about the ways we see artisans show up from like airlines, hotel chains, potato chips. It's just, um, but it doesn't, um, it's very broad. I mean, obviously the the artisan sector is huge and with, um, it can be, you know, Etsy makers, a singular woman in her home. It can be very large cottage industries of, of many, many, many women producing for larger supply chains. And, um, and I think that's part of what's so exciting about the sector is it's much larger and has such potential for economic support for women because of that range. It can be, you know, a handcrafted Hermes multi-thousand dollar bag, or it can be women, 
you know, stringing seed beads onto mass market jewelry and everything in between. And so um, we've really embraced the term handwork at mm-hmm. our organization. And so we talk a lot about, we, do, we talk about artisans, but we, we often call them hand workers because mm-hmm. we see so much range in, um, in what they're doing, but all of them are working with their hands as their primary instrument or tool. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Like you mentioned, because in the fashion industry, you think that the big, the big brands are Mass Chanel. They work with hand workers a lot of times for their shows and, and to produce their clothes. Um, so for your programs, you have multiple programs. Uh, I can cite some of them. Nest Connect, <laughs> Nest Sourcing, Artisan Accelerator, She Report, Makers United, and many other ones. Uh, can you give us a quick overview just so that people can have an idea what... Uh, what kind of services sure. you offer. Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, a large network, which we call our Guild Network, which is an open access network for artisans and makers. Um, and it now has a footprint in 115 countries. And so anybody who is running either a solo entrepreneur business here in the United States or a cooperative of basket weavers in the Philippines can join the Guild and get access to um, resources from afar. So largely um, online. And we have it in multiple languages to support the diversity of the folks kind of tapping in. And then we do more in-depth programs that kind of dig a little deeper. Um, But part of the guild is so that we can also start to understand the sheer size and scope of the artisan sector, which really kind of before Nest hadn't been done. Um, And so it's been a really, it's also an amazing opportunity to learn about the sector as a whole and where there are challenges that are causing hardship for artisans in Swaziland and in South Carolina and where we can kind of um, devote resources in a way that can kind of provide meaningful and replicable support for artisans. And so that's kind of our primary mission. So in addition to what we provide artisans kind of remote for joining the guild, we have an in-depth accelerator, which 10 applicants are selected and we do a year long, um, very intensive program to scale their operations. We have a program in the United States called Makers United, which is about increasing diversity and inclusion within the makers movement. Um, So we have a bunch of other kind of smaller programs, but all of them sort of, you know, center around the idea of better support and access for artisan and your businesses. And I saw also that you have a, a certification. So if a brand yeah. works with you, you just basically have like a hundred yeah. standards. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, uh, you know, kind of, I think post Rana Plaza and, and other kind of disasters like that, I think the idea of supply chain transparency has become very commonplace. And so there's been a lot of work and a lot of organizations that are behind kind of ensuring the well-being of workers and supply chains. Um, But the majority of those programs, if not all of them, have really focused on the factory environment. And most artisans work in home-based environments or very, very small informal workshops. And so as kind of consumer and retail demand for artisan and handcraft grew, brands and retailers really didn't have a very effective way to bring transparency and ensure well-being to a home-based worker. Um, And so we spent a multi-year journey with a bunch of incredible companies piloting and writing this first standard, which is, as you said, 100 standards that map to um, worker safety, environmental impacts, fair wages and transparency and record keeping, ensuring that women and men in, um, that are home-based workers or artisans are free from harassment and abuse within their working environments, even if it's in the home. So kind of making a very adaptive approach that, that really works well in that context um, and promotes worker well-being, home worker well-being first and foremost. And so um, it's a year-long training program that happens on generally pre-COVID on-site um, with the artisan workforce um, and does carry a consumer seal, which is now at Target, West Elm, Pottery Barn, 
some other retailers, mm -hmm. which is super exciting. I don't know if I, I mentioned this, but I discovered your nonprofit through Amy Christensen because I mm -hmm. had her on the podcast and she mentioned you. So the artisans that she works with are in Morocco and I'm guessing you work with artisans all over all over the world, really. How does that relationship work? How do you find those artisans? How do you, how do you create those relationships? So gen I mean, generally we work with brands and retailers who have an artisan workforce and we're mm -hmm. supporting the artisans that they've already located or we help brands and retailers source appropriately. So when they're looking for a specific technique or um, a new product line or assortment, we find a good fit in terms of scale, quantity, you know, all the different kind of design aesthetic pieces that go into a relationship. And our goal really is to create kind of lasting, sustainable relationships between artisans and brands so that it's not just kind of a one and done marketing campaign, um, mm -hmm. but really that, that the workforce really does become embedded in a multi-year, multi-season partnership between the company and the artisans. Amy was amazing. Um, I've known Amy for a really long time and she's working obviously in perfume and so when she was interested in having nest get involved in her project i was like oh you know that's not we're really more in like you know baskets textiles things like jewelry but she encouraged me to come with her to morocco and we visited with the scent harvesters um, and these women who just by hand incredibly delicate work harvest all of the scents jasmine rose you know from the flowers and learning about their process and the care it takes to do that kind of handwork um, and how generational it is that they would learn it from their mothers and it's passed down there's you know issues with um, transmitting that knowledge and it now being mechanized and um, the actual workers no longer there was just so many similarities to the craft to craft move to the craft and craft movement um, that we were really excited so I you know and I think now we've seen we've you know we did we did work with waste pickers um, in Indonesia where they're picking recycled waste out of landfills um, and so we've kind of pushed the barriers of what is handwork quote unquote to kind of new but all kind of informal economies, all primarily women, all underappreciated, undervalued, and often lacking transparency and fair wages. And so kind of it hovers around our mission, but we've, we have kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit in terms of exploring other sectors. Mm -hmm. And this is a question I asked Amy uh, as well about the cultural differences. And since you work directly with artisans, how does that work in terms of, you know, just language barriers and things like that? Yes. I mean, we have a, we have a footprint in 115 countries, so we yeah. <laughs> work with a lot of translators, but a lot of what we've found, we focus a lot on business development. So a lot of what we're looking at is, um, is very steeped in kind of business education. And so um, what we've really found is that some of the learnings from one country are often very applicable to another um, and generally based less on kind of culture or location and much more at the stage the business is in in terms of its growth and what kind of growth they want to see. Are they trying to remain very niche? Are they looking to scale and expand? Um, and so for a lot of our programs, that once you say that, it sounds very intuitive, but for a long time, we were like, we should put all of the Indian based businesses together and do things for them. And, and really like, if the business was like a solo entrepreneur versus one that has a network of 2000 artists, like their business models, their goals are just totally different. And so, so it has been really interesting to kind of play with how we segment and develop our programs and have found that to be really effective to kind of get at the scale and goals of the business and try to um, create cohorts around that, which is um, definitely how some, most of our programs are developed. But I think that the culture piece is a super important one. And, you know, we try to hire locally as much as we can. We work with consultants from the countries 
countries where we're operating, but we're also really excited about, you know, resource sharing and the interconnectivity of artists and entrepreneurs. We, we did a summit where we brought artists and entrepreneurs to New York City for this immersive experience. And it was amazing to see you know, textile, two textile businesses from Swaziland and Jakarta kind of speaking to each other about wastewater and how they're treating it and, you know, the lack of opportunity in it, like it, it was just, it's incredible to see actually the overlap in um, kind of challenges that, that businesses all over the world face. Mm -hmm. My next question is about the brands that you work with, because I'm going to ask you a question from like a, a customer perspective, because mm -hmm. I, I have no idea how it works. But, you know, I was thinking, What's the incentive for a brand to work with artisans? Because obviously today there's that incentive of sustainability and ethical practices because now brands feel that, that it's important to do that because the customer is more aware. But back when you started, like why would a brand want to work with artisans you know, and partner with you? It's definitely increased. <laughs> the number of brands that are interested in working with us has increased steadily over time. So I think the, the sales proposition has gotten better for us over time um, from when I started you know, almost yeah. 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and now I think too, you know, we often get asked about like robotics and technology and supply chains being mechanized and the loss of jobs that comes with those types of um, changes. And, you know, I think it's been interesting to see that the rise in automation and mechanizing supply chains has really happened in parallel to the consumer demand for handcraft. And I think that's no surprise. I think the human psyche does not want our entire world to be automated and technologically based. And so the counter revolution to that is the organic movement and the local movement and the handcrafted movement. And so I think it's been really interesting to see that happen. And I think that there will probably come a day where there's both of those extremes where a lot of the goods we have are mechanized, but that mm -hmm. the, but that a lot of it is also handcrafted because we can't quite get to like having our whole lives be on a device. Um, and so I think that, that kind of craving for all, the more robotics and technological advances happen, I think the better for, for our movement, because I think it, it really does require there to be a counterweight to keep us all sane. And so, um, so we only see a lot of potential right now for, for our mm -hmm. sector. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. And when I was reading the articles, I, I discovered that Target was one of your clients, right? Yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't think like Target, like what kind of products that Target sells is made sure. by artisans you wouldn't we don't yeah. know <laughs> um they they we have christmas ornaments there baskets um okay. there's a lot of handcrafted things actually um in the and i think that like the you know the hat you're wearing like the um, knitted hats you know it's tiny string beaded jewelry i mean we've seen handcraft show up in major retailers so frequently and i think that people those retailers just without the transparency that our program provides didn't want to market it in the way that, um, that we want them to, um, mm -hmm. to talk about that handwork and that the woman might've been in her home producing it. And, and so I think that it's a real opportunity for us to educate consumers on the value of this type of employment, especially for women, mm -hmm. um, and the scale and scope that, that ethical goods actually exist in the world. I think, you know, it can't be a movement only for elites. It can't, it can't be, um, we, you know, we, there has to be some democratization of the of the production of ethical goods. And so um, mm -hmm. some of our larger corporate partners are so exciting to be able to tell consumers you can shop ethically and affordably like those aren't necessarily in contradiction with each other. And so um, the more we can do that, I think the more we'll mainstream a lot of those concepts of ethics. For sure. For sure. And, you know, you were saying you were using the word ethical and 
um, it can be confusing sometimes, you know, the mm-hmm. words, because obviously you work with artisans, you make sure that everybody's paid well. So that's fair wages, ethical practices. But where, where does sustainability stand in all of this? Because artisans still work with machines sometimes. So can we sure. call it sustainable if it's hand, handmade? You know, I think one of the, and one of the reasons we, we really pushed for the seal is that I think a lot of terms have just, they're just used. (laughs) And so one of the things we were seeing was that like the kind of rise in demand of artisan actually, like there were, there are many companies who actually have like a handprint and they're like, this was handmade. And like that alone should signify to the customer that it's good or well-meaning or, um, but most artisans are, you know, in their homes, um, they're paid per piece. So they're not paid a salary wage. Mm-hmm. And so to, to actually figure out whether the artisan is making a minimum wage, let alone a fair wage takes some effort to you know do time motion studies and determine whether the amount you're paying per piece maps to a, a livable wage. And most places don't do that. They're just paying what they think the market can bear. Um, and so the majority of the artisans, when we go in and do our program, are actually making far below minimum wage when we when we enter, even if they're rooted on ethical principles, rooted on cultural, appropriate, um, cultural mm-hmm. preservation. And so um, it's just sort of an educational gap and or just like the, the time it takes to do some of the systems that um, transparency kind of lends itself to. And so, so I th- you know, I think it was really important for us that we start to like put some meaning behind the words, like just because it's artisan, that is good, <laughs> um, but it's not enough. You also need to make sure that that artisan is um, receiving fair treatment and fair labor for, um, for her work. And so um, like how we can kind of push further into some of these movements. Mm-hmm. Um, sustainability, I think, is a complicated one because I think for the most part, it's, it's really centered around environmental impacts. And I think that's really important. Obviously, climate change is real and something that we need to be addressing head on. Um, and the fashion and retail worlds have, have plenty to do in that regard. But I also think it's really important that Um, that not become like a cover for not talking about the human impacts of supply chains. And I think often companies want to focus on environmental sustainability because it's a lot easier to admit that you have a carbon footprint than it is to admit that you are paying disastrously low wages to workers Mm -hmm. in your supply chain. And so it's easier often to kind of focus on the green impacts as opposed to the human impacts and sustainability should to me, be about both of, you know, both of those things. It's not sustainable if you're not um, paying living wages throughout the entire supply chain, if you don't have visibility, if you can't um, ensure those things in your production of goods. And so um, we're also trying to push the envelope for consumers and for companies and thinking about not just environmental sustainability, but more holistically what sustainability means for supply chains. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And lastly, I want to talk about COVID. And throughout our conversation, you you were mentioning that artisans work from home. You know, it, you know, it's been COVID's been very interesting. It did Im- impact. I mean, seventy eight percent of the workers that we support internationally don't have access to consistent healthcare. So they're, you know, they're at the lower ends of the economic spectrum. They're often rural or peri-urban, so they don't necessarily have consistent access to services in ways um, that would be helpful. Um, and they're at the very end of complicated supply chain. So when you know companies and um, brick and mortar stores started closing during the pandemic, the the impacts of those economic decisions were like obviously rippled downstream. And so um, has been it, it was very hard. And then you know in the United States, all of our makers are small business owners um, who rely on in person craft fairs and selling to local boutiques, all of which you know 
basically dried up. So the economic impacts have been staggering for our sector. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I do think for the first time in maybe ever, um, we all understand as consumers what home-based labor means and yep. in a very real and personal way. And so what used to be very complicated for us to like explain what a home worker was and did you know that the tassel on top of your hat was made by a home worker? Consumers were like, what? Like factories? Like they just didn't understand that. And now I think we have a real opportunity for people to get excited about the power of homework and the resiliency and the opportunity, particularly for mothers and women in ways that we didn't have before. So I think that it's definitely not worth <laughs> the economic and health consequences we've had to face. But I do think that like the one thing that we can get coming out of this is a new understanding of what's happening, mm -hmm. um, which um, hopefully will kind of serve the future of work in all of us um, in important ways. For sure. And uh, my last question is, what are your future plans with the Build a Nest? Uh, you mentioned that you saw an increase in demand from brands. So I'm guessing that's just going to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, kind of building on the COVID question, I think, you know, like there was, there have been global lockdowns and factories shut and our workforce that was already home-based and able to mobilize made over 200,000 masks from home safely, ethically, that ended up at the United States Postal Service and New York City hospitals and public housing. And, um, and so the resiliency of our sector is really exciting. And I think that as supply chains start looking at whether and how to reopen safely, um, I think, you know, we have, there's, the sector has a lot of opportunity for sharing lessons of, of how healthier cottage industry models have been built and thrive. And, you know, I also think it's interesting that cottage industry models have been designed by BIPOC communities, by black, brown, and indigenous communities all over the world. And everybody has sort of like dismissed it as like an antiquated way to do work. And and maybe we should be giving voice to, to some of those female leaders who have really, um, frankly, pioneered a way that we should all be thinking about for, for our future. And so um, we see a lot of a lot of promise for for the year ahead. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for answering my questions today. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Favorite Attire. If you liked this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes. Until next time!